welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new, welcome. We just wanted to reassure you and let you know that your hosts are no longer recording in the recording studio, and we're actually all recording this over an audio call in our separate homes. So today we're back with another Lennox Hill review. It's been a really long time since we've talked about this. It's been like a couple episodes in between, but we're super excited to get back into the series. This episode will cover episodes five and six. And yes, it's a huge spoiler alert. So if you'd like to watch it first for the raw time for yourself, then please pause and go on Netflix and watch these two episodes so you guys can join in with this on the discussion. Yeah, so this episode, episode five, um, opens up with Dr. Langer talking about um, how last, the night before, he had dreams about his dad that he was still alive. And he wonders if he wasn't emotionally connected enough with his dad, and he feels guilty about it. Um, and he believes that that might be the reason why he's showing up in his dreams. Um, and then he goes on to say that he went into neurosurgery to cure his father, and that it goes deep for him. This The whole you know, reason behind him being a doctor kind of always comes back to the fact that he wanted to cure his dad, that he wanted to help him. Ultimately, he succeeded with that. And so after that scene, Langer goes into a meeting um, with fellow neurosurgeons where he says he doesn't think that Mitch will be back for a couple of months. Um, But in my opinion, how they portrayed Mitch, who was, you know, in case you forgot, he was one of the fellow neurosurgeons that ultimately got diagnosed with head and neck cancer. From what they were kind of describing his case to be was, I think that he was going to die within a few months. Like, that's how they made it seem to, you know, I guess the uneducated viewer. But, um, you know, Langer starts talking about maintaining the volume of the cases without him, um, you know, before he, quote unquote, comes back, which at this point, I kind of was shocked that they were planning that. But yeah. I think the way that they handled Mitch leaving and possibly coming back, because at this point, we're not really sure Uh, I guess, the status of Mitch. I feel like they were handling it really well. They were talking about volume and the number of cases. So I thought that was really interesting and it was very proactive on their part. It's so easy, especially because Mitch is such a good friend, even more so than a coworker, to have to prepare for things like this. So again, props to them for being extremely professional and keeping their heads clear and really knowing what was important and what they had to do and just putting all their emotions aside. And I thought it was a really good display of what teamwork really meant. Then we go into the awake surgery of another patient, a new patient. His name is Tim. Dr. Bookfar explains to him about the surgery, about how it's going to be an extensive brain tumor and it's going to take a lot of doctors to work on this case. I honestly can't even imagine the pressure of doing this, not only for the patients, but also for the surgeons, because this is an awake surgery, which means the patient is awake and they have to continuously stimulate him and his brain so that they can work on the tumor. Um, They have to move extremely fast and efficiently. And I really appreciated that they turned on his favorite music so that it could, you know, like ease the pain and kind of keep him focused. I also noticed that they were continuously talking to him so that they can see the right side of his brain working. Um, It was just really admiring to see how Dr. Bookbar was keeping the mood really light, even in such a serious situation. Like he continued to ask him about like his hobbies. And though this was such a huge surgery and possibly life-threatening, he didn't kind of use those emotions for the patient, but he kind of made it light so that the patient didn't feel that anxiety. 
Right. And in this scene, what stuck out to me was um, it was such a small kind of cutscene where they had a piece of paper that said patient awake on the OR door. That's kind of crazy to think because like, you know, obviously probably like 90% of surgeries there, um, the patient is, you know, under anesthesia, uh, like generally, but for this, it's like, you kind of have to be careful with like what you're saying, you know, not panicking and keeping your composure because literally the the patient is awake and you're working on their brain. So if you start to talk to the other doctors about, you know, whatever's going on, you can like obviously distress the patient. So I can't even imagine what, you know, you have to go through with that. And even just harping on the fact that the patient was awake, Dr. Bukhar was like, the patient's basically doing you a favor, agreeing to be during the surgery. And I love how, you know, he acknowledges that. And he was like, he was telling himself while scrubbing, he's like, you are a robot, you are a robot, because he was like, you can't dilly-dally, you just got to go in and get out. And what Chloe was saying about how he was keeping the mood light, I don't know about you guys, but I can't even write something down and talk to someone else at the same time, or else I write what I'm speaking. So for him to be openly working on a human being's brain and just talk, and he was like, welcome to New York City, and talking jokes and asking what type of music he wanted, I thought that was phenomenal for him to just keep his hands steady. And like, it takes a lot of concentration. So I thought that was also huge. Yeah, like the level of self-control it takes to not expose how you actually feel and to do everything you can to make sure that the patient is at ease, that he feels safe in that place was so admiring. And honestly, that takes like, I feel like it takes years and years of practice too. It's not something that just comes naturally, but you need to really train yourself as a doctor to do that for your patients. Yeah, and so um, kind of it switches from them doing an operation on, you know, a stranger patient to them talking about Dr. Mitch and his situation. So they say physician illness is a very unique thing. So Dr. Langer is back and talking with Jill, the executive director. And this is kind of the first time that they have to acknowledge the fact that it could not be the best thing for the doctors to, you know, get involved on Mitch's case and trying to compete to operate on him, which at this point, I kind of was getting the vibe that they wanted to. It's revealed to us that he's going to Houston to get treatment instead of staying in New York City and getting operated by like his actual friends, um, which is the best decision in my opinion, because at first everyone, you know, wanted to be the one to cure him, wanted to find the newest, best treatment for him. But ultimately he decided to go kind of across the country (laughs) away from everyone and I ultimately think that that was the best decision for him to make. Exactly. We all saw the level of commitment and level of ambition that came with this and his illness, all of his friends saying that they were going to make it their business. But ultimately, he, I agree with Jamie, made the right call because not to doubt their skills or whatever, but there's a reason why physicians don't operate on people they know really well. And they yeah. even that multiple times throughout the latter episodes they say this is why we don't operate on people we know well or family and he was like family so it's not to take away from their skill set but it's also just the emotional toll it goes into it and what if something went wrong they could never be able to live with that and it just gets so messy so i'm really glad that he kind of took this break and it could have even been freeing for him in a way where he just has to meet new people and it's like a new team and it's kind of like fresh perspectives. So I'm really glad and we'll actually get to see how his surgery turns out and how that decision impacted him later on. But next we actually, they take us back to Dr. Macri, who she just had a child. Um, His name is Joaquin. 
a baby boy and he's so adorable and she looks really good too. She says that her husband has been doing really well with the baby, but you can tell she was like, I can't wait to jump back into work. And I can understand that. We all know that she loves her work. We've seen how intimately she gets to know her patients. So it was kind of exciting for me to see that she was ready to jump back in. She does admit that sometimes she does have some postpartum sadness, but that is completely normal and understandable. But I think that now she feels ready and she has kind of like that sense of urgency that she just wants to go back and see her patients. And she said she loves her job because she talks to so many new people. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a little lighthearted segment. And yeah, we were really excited to see how she was going to do after a few months, really, of not working. Yeah, you can... You can immediately see the smile on her face when she's talking to the camera about going back to work and how excited she is. Um, I thought that was really um, interesting because, you know, this is her calling and she really loves what she does. And though she loves her baby and her family, she's just dying to go back to work and continue the life that she had before the baby. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because um, even before she had the baby, she was talking about how she knew that she wanted to go back to work. She was like planning it out like oh, I'm going to want to go back. I'm going to want to go back. And she actually, like, she described it as a Disneyland vacation. And she just jumps right in. Like, she, um, I remember she meets all the new nurses and introduces herself. And she just kind of, like, jumps into seeing patients. And, yeah, she's awesome. (laughs) Then we go to check up on Dr. Little Richardson, who is only on her third year of residency. Um, But she talks about how she might have to move with her husband, not might, she has to move with her husband across the state. And she also mentions that she's a little bit afraid of going out on her own to leave this hospital that she's been at for so long. Yeah, but she also mentions that, you know, she has a big family and they're all so supportive. And she also talks about how um, her parents were one of the reasons why she wanted to become a doctor and that she still has so much more to see and so many things to experience but it's just so crazy because she seems like she knows so much and she carries herself with so much competency uh, when she deals with all the patients and you know continues to do what she does but in reality she's only been a resident for three years and she has a whole world out there that she has to you know go through and experience And you could see that this move is tough for her because, um, you know, not only in this scene, but um, in following scenes, she always talks about like, you know, how much she loves the city and how much she identifies with being a New Yorker. But she made it also sound like Kevin gave up a lot for her to move to New York and, you know, obviously her be pregnant without him. I love their relationship because they compromise so much on everything. And, you know, she's finally realizing that she needs to do something in his favor. And ultimately that is moving across the country so so yeah that was a really nice scene and then in the sec in the next scene um dr langer is giving his patient chris um with the glioblastoma he was the one that got married in the hospital just had a daughter he's pretty young they were giving him local rather than systemic chemo because bookvar thought of this idea like he explained before his dad had a bad reaction to a high dose chemo and actually passed away from complications from the chemo so he is kind of cons- wants to go a conservative route with Chris, and instead of blasting his whole entire body with chemo, he just wants to treat the tumor locally. Right. I thought it was really cool to see how Bookvar's experience with his own father, when he basically said his father didn't even die away from just the cancer itself, it was because of the treatment to the cancer. So to see that his he's taking his life experience 
and using it in an innovative way to make sure to the best of his ability that it doesn't happen to anyone else. I thought that was so cool. And it really does show how these doctors are always thinking they don't just do their surgeries and go home. They're doing research. And I think that's incredible. They have so many other things that are going on in their heads and creating all of these new treatment systems and techniques. So I thought it was really cool for me to be introduced to that as well, to see that something like that does exist because I haven't really been exposed to this type of treatment before and knowing that it exists. So um, that was definitely a big learning experience for me on my part. Um, Dr. Bookfar's father also, it was mentioned that he had an illness called lymphoma. And I noticed that a lot of these doctors are motivated to become doctors because of what their loved ones went through. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautiful to see how something so courageous and even like priceless came out from such a horrible thing. Because, you know, if you watch your parents or someone you love go through cancer and all these illnesses, it's so painful. And But at the end of the day, something really amazing came out at the end of it where the children are sacrificing their whole lives to save the lives of other parents and other families. And so these doctors are all dedicating literally every aspect of their lives for the lives of others. Yeah, and that's how things get really personal, which is also Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a huge step for them too. And then we go back to Tim's surgery, who was having the awake surgery. Um, They are just touching all the different parts of the brain to see how it affects the movements of his body. Um, Dr. Bookfar goes to talk to Tim's family again and explains that he might get weaker over the next couple of days and that he might even have seizures, which will be a setback. But at the end of the day, the surgery went really well. Um, It does sound a lot like Mitzi's case. They did get out all the tumors and um, he did an amazing job doing it. And he explained that how having Tim awake throughout the surgery allowed him to, to get all the tumor out and that If he wasn't awake, it would have been as easy. And he also mentioned that he will never do anything that's going to hurt the patient, that everything that he did was ultimately for the patient. And I was just so thankful that everything was fine at the end because it was so, I was at the edge of my seat just watching this scene with him awake while they opened up his brain. But thank God everything went well. Yeah, that was a huge relief. It's so great to see that what drives them is not the number of cases or how much money they can make, but it's, is it going to hurt the patient or not? That's their ultimate motive. And actually speaking of Mitzi, remember she's the woman from Tennessee who had a tumor in her neck for 10 years that no one wanted to touch, but Dr. Langer really stepped up and took a risk because he really wanted to help her out. Today they, or in the episode, they are finally taking out her tumor. Remember, this surgery process took several days. There are multiple steps. She even had a stroke after one of the surgeries, which was a big setback. And that was a big scare too. But they finally were ready to remove her tumor. She actually looks a lot better. Um, You can tell still her voice doesn't sound as normal, but she's able to talk more. And in this case, Langer says... I hate knowing the patients so well. It's like operating on your family. Again, just him saying that with someone who, when we compare to Mitch, obviously he knows Mitch a lot better than Mitzi. So that's another big relief that they that he didn't decide to do the surgery on Mitch or any of his friends decided to do it on Mitch because it's such a hard thing. And Langer just coming out and saying that really just show the burden that that can bring upon you. So yeah, that's just an update with Mitzi's case. And then the camera um, goes back to Macri, Dr. Macri, um, who is back to work. Everyone's so happy to see her again. And like I was saying before, she kind of just jumps right into 
working and her first patient is a man um, with no legs and they do not know where his wheelchair is, but she seems to have already built rapport with him and kind of know him a little bit. So um, she is offering him all these different types of treatments and he keeps saying, you know, whatever you say, doc, whatever you say, doc, you could kind of get the vibe that he's like fought nurses and doctors in the past um, because you know, obviously he gets, he might get agitated sometimes, but the camera, um, you know, will show different conversations with her coworkers where she says she feels uncomfortable leaving um, her kid at home with a nanny that she didn't necessarily like completely get along with um, and feel comfortable with. But she enjoys her shift back, um, but she's also thinking about her family. Her mind must be in two places at once, which is definitely hard for her. We then see Dr. Little Richardson, who is studying Um, She has a few more surgeries to do to fill her residency requirements, and she wants to do it before she has her baby, which makes a lot of sense. She has such a long day, but then at the end, she has to go back and study all her notes and finish her requirements. And honestly, that is so stressful to have a full shift and then to study. I don't know if you guys noticed, but she always takes like 10 minute breaks, whether it's for naps or social media. And that's so short. Um, I take like one hour naps and I complain about how, you know, short they are, but she takes 10 minutes to do all these things, to squeeze everything that she needs to do, and then gets right back into being productive and getting things done. Uh, She honestly kind of looks a little bit stressed out to me, which I don't blame her for. Yeah, she, we have to remember that she's also a student. Yeah, and she's pregnant, so she's carrying around a huge belly, taking care of another human being. I, when I think about her life, it gives me so much anxiety, but you can just tell that she's just the right person for it. Even though she gets stressed out at times, I just, I can like feel her toughness and I just know she's so capable of doing it. So I'm just like really rooting for her. And then in the next scene, Dr. Langer is about to do mid surgery and he says that the OR is his happy place and kind of proceeding this huge brain surgery that he's about to do. He has three different conversations with like three different people about all the things that he has to do that day. And one of the people are trying to get him to decide what their website is going to look like. Um, It looks like he has a lot of like IT support trying to kind of promote um, the neurosurgery department at Lenox Hill. And then another person comes and talks to him about a ribbon cutting ceremony for, I I believe it's like um, Lenox Hill itself because he says, how many ribbon cuttings can you possibly have for one place? Um, It must be like, you know, so annoying for him to have like these huge life altering surgeries to think about. And then at the same time, like, being bombarded with, you know, daily life at the same time. But yeah, so Dr. Langer says that he's so fed up with all the politics and the events of the hospital. And he ultimately, you could see it in his personality. He just wants what's best for the patient. And I think that's kind of, unfortunately, I think that's kind of rare today. But yeah, he's he's a great doctor. He ultimately made another colleague go. I remember he said, I can't make it. Just go and wear your Lennox Hill neurosurgery hat to like represent the team. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so funny. He was like checking his schedule, but I had a feeling he was going to say no either way. <laughs> I mean, the person's like, okay, and just like walked away. So that was funny. Um, I do, again, like just a general statement. I do appreciate the little like spurs of humor within there, like the episodes. It really does lighten stuff up. And it's, it's really funny too, um, because these people are real people. And yeah, I think he's, just overall such a great guy. Um, so speaking of Dr. Langer, we know he's working on Mitzi's surgery, so we actually get brought back to that moment where he begins working on her tumor. He ultimately gets most of the tumor all out, really, like a lot of it, but it you could tell it was really messy when he's working on her, 
and there was actually a problem that arises during the surgery. Someone was using, I think, one of the imaging machines for a different purpose that it wasn't built for, so they were having issues, and you could tell he gets frustrated. He's like, get someone who knows what they're doing, and he says, this machine was not meant for that purpose. So while they're like working on her, they're calling IT and they're calling people who can tell them, they're saying what it should look like, what the wire order should be. And that just really, I guess, made me stressed out. But um, yeah, what did you guys think about that? Like just all this craziness happening. I also noticed how stern he was when he when it comes to the operation room, as he should. Um, you can tell definitely that with his personality that he can be so gentle and calm outside of the operation room. But when he's inside the operation room and he's you know, doing surgeries on the patients, he's not messing around. And like he mentioned earlier, he does have an attachment to this family, to Mitzi's family. So when he notices that something was not done properly and somebody wasn't doing it, wasn't using it for the right purpose, he got angry and he made it, he made his point clear that this is not what it's supposed to do. And he does not want this to ever happen again in the operation room. Yeah, definitely. And um, a quote from him during this whole procedure was, what a crazy case. I mean, seriously, let me call my wife. And so um, it's revealed to us that she might have some residual tumor left, but it's very slow growing. So even if there is, they aren't going to like rush to operate again. And he said that, you know, it took 10 years for it to grow this size. Um, It's obviously going to grow at a slower rate now. You know, when he was talking to his wife, his wife said he doesn't want she doesn't want to go out to dinner with him because it's too late. He's obviously upset about that because here he is, like, pleasing everyone all day, and he just wants to do something fun with his wife. And, you know, obviously, I don't blame her. It was late. It looked pretty late when he walked out of the hospital. But, yeah. you know, then he starts talking about his dad and his time in the hospital. And his dad was a neurosurgeon. So um, when his dad had a stroke, the hospital actually laid him off. And he had no way to pay his bills, which is really sad, you know, to hear him talk about. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's well off now, but he didn't let that bother him, though, and he still wanted to pursue medicine. Um, he could have became, you know, super angry with the whole situation and, and you know, took that experience and kind of th- threw medicine out with it, but he didn't. And he still persevered and obviously became a neurosurgeon, so he never became angry and he, um, you know, still appreciates medicine today. Yeah, that was crazy to hear what they did to his father. Obviously, it's so horrible and I wasn't really expecting that, but at the same time, I wasn't surprised, to be honest, that when one of their own gets sick, that they just kind of pushed him out. And they were actually, you know, covering at that time, I think Langer's medical school bills as well. So it was just, it was horrible, honestly. And to see that he honestly became bigger than them, and now he's so successful and he's helping people in the same area of medicine, I think that's a huge thing to be respected for because obviously when stuff like that happens where it's just you know just a fact straight up unfair people can go two different ways and it's really difficult both ways so I wonder if that's why he places so much emphasis on family and working together and really being there for each other um, as doctors not only just for the patients but even with um Um, Dr. Mitchell Levine's case, they were so eager to take on his cases and to make sure that he he feels comfortable, that he's getting his treatments, and that he wanted him to know that his patients are going to be safe and okay, and that they're a family and they're not going to throw anybody out. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, people who are like, well, I didn't get that, so why should you? Mm -hmm. 
even with like professors and stuff, they're like equally harsh with what they've gone through. And then what we say on the other side, we're like, well, you know how hard it is. So why can't you do everything to prevent that? And that's exactly what he did. He could have been like, well, my own father got kicked out. So I know you're my friend, but you're sick. So, but instead they literally like all put their heads together and were thinking how could, how many cases of his can we take? So yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and that's interesting because I kind of didn't even draw that parallel between his dad and what Mitch is going through. Um, super similar situations, and, you know, and I love that you guys, like, <laughs> kind of connected that, and he he obviously is embracing Mitch and, and trying to do his best to take care of him. Um, yeah, he's just, like I said before, he's just an amazing doctor, and the next scene, he actually cries when he's talking to Mitzi and a direct quote from him is I put a lot of emotion into it most of the times things go well but when they don't it's not because I'm a bad person or don't care but her first surgery set me back when things go well it's incredibly gratifying and I think it's so important especially in neurosurgery for him to you know obviously be aware of that because you will have you know these crazy successful brain surgeries but then at the same time you know you have to be realistic and a lot of, you know, even what we've seen through Lennox Hill is especially aggressive cancers and, you know, other, I guess, like brain injuries that you can't really cure. So despite all of this, um, I'm a huge Dr. Langer fan because he is just so practical and caring and loving. And yeah, if God forbid I ever need him, well, I'll use him. Okay. <laughs> and then in the next scene, Bookvar says that he never pushes treatment that is not going to help the patient. And so the patient that they did the surgery on, he was awake. His name is Tim. And, you know, he came to him with a good arm and good leg. And even though he took out the whole tumor to extend his life, he feels like he's in a dilemma because um, at this point, it's a couple, it seems like a couple days after the surgery and he still can't move his leg. Um, so he's kind of going through that dilemma where, you know, at what point do you stop kind of? Um, because he also has his own, you know, personal experiences with cancer. Um, his dad had cancer and he never told his sons that he had it. Bukvar's dad was also a doctor and two of his sons were doctors. Um, and he goes on to say that he feels as though he could have helped him in the earlier stages where there were a lot of decisions to be made about what type of treatment and what type of course to go through. And he thinks that he could have altered his course and saved his life. Which, um, in my opinion, I personally don't think that that's necessarily the situation because obviously his dad was a physician and I don't think he was making, you know, quote unquote, bad decisions that Bukvar would have steered him, you know, in the completely opposite direction. Um, and, you know, it was obviously his right to have his own personalized treatment that he wanted. Um, and, you know, it's not like he was making uneducated decisions, um, just like off a whim, which, you know, he kind of was making it sound like so. I don't think he should be too hard on himself for, I guess, not knowing or, or being there for like his early treatment stages. But I think that he still holds that idea to this day and kind of applies it to his own career. Yeah, I, I know this is something that we mentioned in the previous episodes, too, and just like an overall theme of this documentary. But the decision is ultimately up to the patient, no matter what the doctors think. Um, even what the families think, because sometimes I feel like families just want their loved ones to stay for as long as possible without really considering how it's going to impact their life, the individual themselves. So um, like if I was told that I could live a specific number of years, but not be allowed to move or talk, I would seriously consider not taking that chance of the surgery because for me, it's 
quality over quantity. So this is something that a lot of surgeons have to really sit down and talk about with their patients and their families. But ultimately, it should be up to the patient to what they want to do with their life. Right. That was a really important segment and a time for him to really open up about his past and I guess how he's feeling. So yeah, that shed a lot of light on a lot of issues that surround those types of decisions. Um, And then I guess to try to lighten things up a little bit, the next scene is back to Dr. Macri. She's still learning all the new nurses' names. She's like, oh, I don't know anyone anymore. And she's so unfamiliar with everyone, but she was gone for, I think, like four months or so. Um, But it was cool to see how everyone really welcomed her and she was so open to it. She was just really in her zone and you could tell she's in her happy place. There's just this one patient that stood out to us, though. He was kind of uptight and he kept asking for specific foods. She'd be like, okay, so like, do you want some water? And he's like, okay, how about Thai food? Vietnamese? Oh, do you have like um, maybe a sandwich with pickles, like dill pickles? And the nurses are like, yeah, that sounds really good. And she's like, you just need to relax. And she was saying with patients like these, you just have to have them literally sleep on it just to unwind. And she turns off his lights and puts on like, like a nature video to calm him down. And he still talks about food even when he's getting discharged. But I just thought that was funny. He just had his own agenda. And um, yeah, that was just one of, I guess, the funnier parts of this episode. Yeah, I think they're giving him a shot to kind of calm him down. Um, Again, we don't really know what his like state of mind is like. But Dr. Macri was also saying how she never assumes what they're going through. And all she does is like focus on the help that they need. And I thought that was so powerful because she kind of looks past even his attitude and how he's treating the nurses and the doctors. And when she's like, you know, filling out his form, she's like, I can't get him Thai food, but we'll take care of everything else. And again, here she shows zero judgment. Right. Yeah, I love that about her, too. Um, And in the next scene, Dr. Little Richardson goes to an employee appreciation party where they have food there. I think like people are in like a photo booth and it seems really fun. Um, But it's kind of sad because she knows that she has to get back to, um, you know, work and study afterwards. Um, And she kind of makes that clear to us that it is on her mind a lot. But, you know, kind of in the same um, breath, she's saying that she sees her co-residents more than she sees her own family and that they have a lot of teamwork and she'll miss them a lot. It looks like they're a good bunch of people, like they all get along um, because, you know, they're dancing together, having a good time. And then all of a sudden, um, like clockwork, they're, you know, called back up for an emergency. So it was so sad because there was even like a shot of like their food left there that was like untouched. Like their their soda cans were like still like unopened. And um, she was thinking about it the whole time. You know, you could definitely see that. Um, And then she ultimately got called up for an emergency, which was sad. But yeah, I guess it's just the way of life for them. Right. With situations like this, the timing couldn't be worse, but I feel like like that's always what happens. I don't know. I knew that they weren't going to be able to finish their food. And I just think that's how it always works out all the time. You you throw these huge feasts for your employees and I'm sure like even more than half of them didn't even get to go or they got to go and have food in their plate and they didn't even get to finish it. But I guess we'll be, we're being brought back to now Chris. Remember he's the patient with the glioblastoma and he was on the clinical trial he actually, remember, got married in the hospital to his wife, Laura, and Bokfar was the one heading his surgeries and his progress. So Bokfar looks at the scan and he's concerned because Chris's tumor is actually growing 
he decides and says to the family, Laura's there um, during a meeting that it's no longer really treatable. And he says at this point, there's no, I guess it's hard to keep pursuing things because these side effects will ultimately outweigh the benefits. So that's just a really tough call to make. And remember how we talked about how sometimes like Mitch was the one who got diagnosed with cancer, but everyone around him was like more, I guess, sensitive to it. And they were just freaking out more than he was. And this was the same case where Chris took the news well, or at least what it seemed like it. But obviously for his wife, it was so heartbreaking. And she just, she just immediately starts breaking down. And that really broke my heart to hear that from a doctor to say, you just should stop trying. So I thought that was so heartbreaking. Like, how did you guys... So those were my emotions. How did you guys feel like listening to that and knowing that that's the type of news that they were getting that day? Um, For me, I feel like it's just out of character for Bookvar to make that decision um, because he's always like trying to push it, push it, push it, trying like new um, novel treatments and clinical trials to put his patients on. Um, but it was pretty sad that at this point, um, you know, Chris's tumor was just in Brookvar's mind, like, untreatable and for for him to say that must mean it's pretty bad yeah and mind you during this episode the camera was on this family the whole time um even through you can just see them cry you can see all the emotions right there and for me i really thought a lot about the partner chris's partner and every time they have these talks she just bursts out in tears because she doesn't know what's going on she, she doesn't know why it's happening and she begs the doctors for a cure and yeah like i cried a little bit throughout the scene because you can kind of sense how helpless you feel even at a hospital with these amazing doctors sometimes that's that's just life and it's very hard to accept, but these things happen all the time in the hospital. And as doctors, it's something that, not something you get used to, but something you have to really learn to cope with in order to kind of move on to the next patient and to really try to see the brighter side of things. Yeah, I think Dr. Bookvar also mentioned that one of the only positives of the disease is that it's not going to be a painful death. And that's not really a positive, but that's. Yeah. The only positive that he could give and I could also you know empathize with Dr. Bookbar who didn't have any good news to give them and all he had was all these you know bad things to say but that's not his fault either. Yeah and talking about you know like looking on the positive side when you're um, a neurosurgeon um, Dr. Langer says you always remember the patients that you hurt, never the patients that you heal and they do heal you know so many people and you even see that in this you know short aspect of their lives um, that we see through the series. But, um, you know, Dr. Langer calls Mitch and updates him on his day. You know, they're still making jokes with each other. Um, it's still an extremely lighthearted conversation, um, you know, despite all like the tragic things that they both have been through during the day. And so I really think that it takes strong people to be neurosurgeons and that they're the right fit for it. And in the next scene, he kind of squeezes by to us, it looks like a random crying couple, um, which is actually Chris and Laura after they just got the devastating news from Book Bar. Um, and he, the way he squeezed by them was like so like, I guess, not like, I don't want to say aggressive, but like quick and like, I guess um, he was definitely walking with a purpose. So um, the way the camera 
um, you know, captured that moment was insane because it just goes to show you like how much could be happening at the hospital at one time and you don't even realize. And just because he always says things, you know, sometimes don't go the way that he wants. It doesn't make him a bad person or a bad surgeon. It's just that, you know, it's just life, unfortunately. And that's how this episode ends. You know, a lot happened in this episode, a lot with Mitch, a lot with um, the two neurosurgeons. And um, moving on to episode six, it opens with Macri talking about her first experience with death. In this, in these past two episodes, there's a lot of conversation about death and dying. And, and in the case of the two neurosurgeons, their fathers and their unfortunate deaths. Um, and now it's Macri's turn. And she says that her grandmother was dying, but they surrounded her and spent her last dying moments with her. She says she never forgets the sights and smells and she thinks to herself, why wasn't I more scared? But then she revisited that moment over and over again and realized that she was okay with death and that it was something that she could deal with. And that's, you know, what ultimately pushed her to become an emergency room doctor. And the way she describes that whole situation was like almost, almost beautiful, like almost like, you know, in, in a birth, you know, but it was a death. Um, and it just sounds like her family was surrounding her grandmother. They were supporting her. And it just sounded, she made it sound really, really nice. Yeah, I feel like when she said that, you can clearly tell um, working in the ER was her calling, and she so confidently knew that. Then we move on to Dr. Bookfar, who meets a patient named Jack, who is a um, patient who cannot read, and he also mentions how he wants to die earlier, and um, he probably just doesn't want to suffer through the treatments anymore. Um, Dr. Bookfar asks him if he wants to leave the hospital, and the patient just says no and says that he's not prepared. Um, Dr. Bookfar gives him a little pep talk about how he should keep fighting if he has any fight left in him, but I don't know. I just felt like the patient just didn't even want to fight anymore, um, and that just made me think about how we never really know what kind of pain the patient is going through, and I think there were mentions about um, the patient's daughter's wedding and how Dr. Bookbar wanted him to be there for his daughter's wedding, but the patient just honestly had no motivation, and it was as if he wanted to die as soon as possible, which was so heartbreaking because there is no sight of hope there, and for the patients, you know, hope is everything. If they don't have hope, what is there left? And there's no strength to keep fighting, and we didn't really see much of that throughout the other episodes. Everything is very like, let's keep going. Let's fight through this cancer. But with this patient, he just he just wanted it to be over because it was too painful. Exactly. And I guess speaking on the topic of death, we actually go back to Langer. He's in his office and he has on these that headband with cat ears on it. And at first I'm like, what, what is this? But then he explains that it was actually um, one of his patients. She unfortunately passed when she was 20 years old and the family gave it to him. I guess it was something that she wore and it was hers. So he said he still keeps it, you know, obviously just reminds him of that time. And um, he was like, yeah, it was super sad. So I found, I found it kind of sweet that he kind of kept something of hers. It just really does show that this is more than just a job, like it's his lifestyle and it, it's, it's personal to him. So then speaking of, you know, super young patients. Langer goes to see another patient that he's up, he's about to operate on in her brain. She has a tumor in her brain and she has a huge family and you can tell they're all so loving. They like hug and kiss Dr. Langer and they actually ask him a specific request. They have, I guess this, she calls it, she's like, I have a Jesus kit. 
and it's like a bag with I think a Jesus statue and maybe other stuff inside and they asked if Dr. Langer could put it anywhere under her body during the operation. So he was like, yeah, of course. And I thought that was really nice to see. He didn't question it. He was just like, yes, if that's what you want, then of course. And we actually see him follow through with that later on in the episode when he actually does operate on her. So yeah, it was really nice to see that. Right. And we don't know what kind of beliefs Dr. Langer has, but he has so much respect for everybody else. So even if this was like kind of a quote unquote silly request or something that he could have easily disregarded, he made sure to do it because he knew how much it meant to the family. Um, Dr. Langer also mentioned that for him, operating on children is especially hard because it's such a huge responsibility and he kind of has a personal relationship with the patient and the family. So he definitely treats this um, child like his own child. And when, you know, the patient asks the nurses like, oh, I'm very scared. What do you think is going to happen? The nurses have full confidence in his abilities and tells her that she has nothing to worry about. Um, And I think even that mindset going into surgery of being calm and relaxed and knowing that everything's going to be okay at the end is plays a really crucial role in the whole surgery itself. Yeah, definitely. And her family are like the nicest people ever. Um, there's thanking Dr. Langer, you know, so, so, so much. And they're saying, you know, God drives your hands and, you know, God's with you. And that was like really, really, it was so nice to see that. Um, they're really good people. So you have this awesome scene with a, you know, a young girl that is, has a treatable form of you know brain cancer and then you turn to Chris um, and at this point his speech is unintelligible um, he's so frustrated and inflamed because he's on um, it looks like pretty high dose steroids and um, the nurses cannot find a place to put his IV and he's trying to tell them where to put it um, and it's just mass confusion between you know his lack of ability to communicate and then you know, their frustration with him because he is kind of, you know, getting aggressive at this point. And his partner, Laura, is holding back tears because she's just so tired of all this and she's fighting so hard and it's emotionally, mentally, physically, you know, hard for her to handle. She has to kind of treat, um, you know, him as his mom almost because he's kind of being irate and, you know, she sits him down and is like, you okay you have to calm down like you need to you know stop this right now and it's it's really sad to see but um you know he's just getting so angry because no one um can effectively communicate with him and then in the next scene we actually find out that he has to sit through an mri and if anyone has ever gotten an mri it's like a super claustrophobic loud space um they didn't really show um a lot of the scan but I can't believe how he had to sit through that in that state of mind. Um, Yeah, he's so strong, Laura's so strong, and it's just, it's really hard to see. Exactly. It's like Chris is actually kind of locked in. It's crazy because before we would talk about Chris, and in the previous episodes earlier on, he was fine. He was able to talk and communicate, and we all talked about that too. So I guess because we talked about him so much and we were witnessing him having just fine conversations with people and now to this where he's basically locked in because he can understand everything and he knows what he wants to say it's just something's blocking that pathway so he it must be so frustrating and um it really I was frustrated for him is just the best way to put it 
and actually talking about our other clinical trial patient. If you remember Augie, she's the cop and she's the person who's like the eighth person in the world to get this novel treatment on this trial. We see her getting treatment and she starts groaning and shuddering in pain because of the treatment and it's really hurting her in the head. At that point, I just thought that's so frustrating and it's kind of scary too. You could tell that it was no joke. She was, it was so painful for her. I didn't even know how to feel. I just, it was just sad to go from Chris and then go to Augie to see all this. I think it's just hard for me to see them in so much pain that the treatment is causing them. Yeah, and also because they have no other option but to go through with the treatment. It's like, if they take the treatment, if they do the surgery, they're going to experience pain and possibly have life-changing, you know, different things happening to them. But if they don't do it, the tumor is going to continuously grow, which leads to death. It's like a lose-lose situation almost, but you kind of take that chance to get the treatment. But even that, when that doesn't work out, it feels so heavy and hopeless. Then we go back to Marie's surgery and um, you know, Dr. Langer makes sure she puts the the Jesus package under her. Um, the surgery seems like it's going well. Dr. Langer is teaching the people that are in the room with all the different drills and all the other equipments. And he seems like, but towards the end, it seems like he's having a hard time getting the tumor out. And both Dr. Langer and Dr. Bukvar are trying to figure out what it is um, if they got all the tumor out. So I feel like throughout this whole surgery, there was a lot of up and downs. They see some success, but then they see a little bit of roadblock and they spend a majority of it trying to see what it is and whether they should take it out or not um, because they don't know if these margins are clear enough, um, whether it's a tumor or not. So yeah, there was a lot going on throughout the surgery. Yeah, and she is such a strong girl. I think they said that she was maybe like 16 um, and she moved here from Brazil, and he kind of uh, makes it a point to tell everyone in the room that that she moved here um, because she wanted to be an actress, um, oh, yeah. and her family is just so lovely. Um, and yeah, she's being a, a really big fighter throughout this. And then in the next scene, Dr. Amanda Little Richardson is getting more informed about her baby. Um, Kevin is really involved in asking good questions, um, but at the same time, you kind of get the feeling from him that He's holding on to hope that the baby will not have the Noonan's birth defect. And the doctor even has to say to him, you know, quote, this is not a possibility. Like, this is a definite. And he kind of swallows that pretty hard. Um, obviously, I do not blame him at all. It's, it must be so hard for them to, um, you know, having to go through this pregnancy and he be on the other side of the country. Um, but she says that she doesn't think about the diagnosis every day, that it might steal, you know, the whole joys of pregnancy and the fact that she's an OBGYN doctor, you know, this only happens to you a couple times throughout your life. And she has, you know, obviously we talked about this in the past, like gotten to see so many, so many, so many healthy births and, you know, great pregnancies, um, you know, so the, the child might not be picture perfect the way that they imagine they're pushing through with a lot of positivity um, from both Amanda and Kevin. And during this appointment, what I thought was funny is Dr. Little, she was like, I want everyone to remember this moment. So when her and Kevin were dating, Kevin would be like, your dad spoils you. You're such a daddy's girl. Why does he do that? And then during the appointment, Kevin's like, yeah, I actually have a list of things in my head that I want to buy her, like speaking about his daughter. And I thought that was so cute. And that just really show that you can never, ever assume what it's like to be a parent unless you 
become one yourself? Because he was, he really didn't get it. He was like, Dr. Little, why does your dad spoil you? I don't get that. But here he is planning to do the same thing even prior to the birth of his baby daughter. So that really does show how some people can just completely 180, which is why I personally am very careful about making assumptions or judgments or even forming any type of opinion when it comes to parents and their decisions or their preferences, because I don't know if I'll be the same or different. And you really, like, especially with this type of stuff, you really just got to have your own child to truly understand. Um, Dr. Little and Kevin actually talked to um, Dr. Little's mentor and she mentions how that she has to have a baby now and that she has to complete her residency, complete her research project, pass her boards and move to the other side of the country all within six months. And Dr. Little's like, well, what are you going to do? Stop. Um, So she has so much on her plate and she has like this whole list of things that she has to do before the baby comes when she has to become a mom. And it does seem overwhelming, but oddly, she doesn't seem that overwhelmed. Like she seems like she's so ready to take on everything and that she's going to do all those things eventually. And now going back to Marie's surgery, the um, young girl, they sent a part of the tumor that they excised to pathology to check their margins and they find out that it's part of the glioma um and just watching them do the brain surgery it's truly insane you know they're fighting over what regular brain tissue is and you know what's tumor and you can't help but imagine you know what if they remove even the smallest part of her brain that they think is the tumor how many deficits she could have from that she's not awake during the surgery which is probably a good thing because she is so young Unfortunately, their family is first, um, you know, celebrating um, and they're hugging Bookvar because Bookvar, um, you know, goes out to them and says, you know, everything went fine. And then, you know, they kind of start talking amongst themselves and, you know, unbeknownst to them, Bookvar gets a call saying that they have to go up to pathology and get more confirmation that, you know, their margins were clear. And it ends up that they have to reopen her. And then Bookvar, you know, getting punched in the face from multiple directions, then gets a call that Aggie scans were pretty bad. Um, And that is the woman who's on the clinical trial um, with the bacterial infection. Um, She was the um, retired cop. And she has, and Bukvar literally has to leave one brain surgery to go attend to another patient under, you know, novel clinical trial that's not necessarily doing too well. And you can't help but think in in Aggie's case, if it would have just happened normally, or if it was due to the trial, um, it's, it's horrible to think because she was a functioning um, police officer a few months or, you know, years ago, and now she's, she was using a cane in one of the scenes, which was really, you know, sad, and she was, she was pretty weak. But at the same time, you can't, you can't blame the treatment because obviously no one knew that that was going to happen to her. So um, after that whole debacle with Aggie and Bookvar, um, they actually end up finding a grade two glioma in um, Marie's case. Um, just for some context, I remember they said that Aggie's was a grade three, um, but they ended up in Marie's case going back and fixing it. Um, and he's and I think it was Langer said we cure cancer one cell at a time. So they didn't care, you know, how deep they had to go to get rid of, you know, to get their clear margins, um, you know, because they would were thinking of their own daughters and what they would want. And it was so awesome because she woke up from brain surgery. And, you know, they're like, all right, squeeze my hand, move your legs. And her first words are, peace and love, Dr. Langer, peace and love. And (laughs) she said that like a couple times. And she's just so strong and like such a fighter. Um, Yeah, I love her. And I'm glad that everything, you know, worked out for her in the end. 
Exactly. She's such a fighter and you could see she has so much personality and I love it. We're here for that. And I'm glad that she was still Marie. Um, so we know that during this whole thing, Dr. Bookvar got called out because Augie's scans looked quote unquote horrible. That's what Sharice told him, the NP. And it turns out that her tumor just really spread after, even after treatment. So, you know, they don't know anything about it now. It's a trial. So they're really shocked and We'll see an update about her more later, but you can just tell that it's not really looking good for her at this point. So that was just kind of, I guess, um, an update for her. To go back to our other clinical trial patient, Chris, they, Dr. Bookfar looks at his MRI and he's confused because his scans got better. And he was like, I don't understand how. And you could tell, like, that's true. Like, there's only so much you know. So to see that even he was stumped is just such a testament to see, like, how crazy these trials can be, how the course of a cancer can really just shock you and you never know what's around the corner. But he's still not speaking well. So then Dr. Bookfar is like, well, that's kind of bad because, like, yes, he's fine, like, health-wise, but he still can't talk. So he's, like, locked in. And that's a lot of frustration there, too. But you can tell Laura when she hears the news, she's like, she like breathes out and she's like laughing and she's like swaying from side to side and she's so happy. And Bookfar says basically the hornet, which is the cancer, is all dead and all that's left is the nest. So that's just an update from there. It's kind of like a little lighter note compared to what was just said to them before. Yeah, I also really liked how Dr. Bookfar explained it in a way that the patients can understand. Even Chris understood what he was talking about. Um, and he was so empathetic in the way how he explained to Chris about how it must be confusing to be in a body where you cannot produce proper speech. And he just continuously pours positivity to this family. And he also advises Chris to sing and push himself as always and to just keep fighting. They turn on music and they sing along together, which I thought was so sweet and honestly so wonderful because Laura, it looked like this burden was lifted off her chest. And um, yeah, she looked good. They all looked very happy in that office. Yeah, that was um, a really good scene because everyone involved was happy. Bookvar, um, you know, Laura and Chris all were happy that his scans were looking better. And, you know, like Chloe said, I really liked how um, he made it, you know, so simple to understand in layman's terms with, you know, um, the analogy. Just goes, He's just an awesome doctor, too. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just like making a fan club over here, but they're, they're really, really good doctors. Um, you know, at some type of event that they have um, in this episode, Mitch actually comes back. And it's kind of a shock to see him at first because, you know, even though he told us that he wasn't going to look the same when he came back, um, you know, you see his whole face and there is, you know, he is missing, you know, part of, it looks like part of his kind of jaw and like, you know, upper neck area. Um, but it's still Mitch. He has not changed a bit. It was so such a nice scene because it was a tiny, crowded, cluttered room of the neurosurgery department. Everyone was so happy that he was back. Uh, Dr. Langer speaks on his behalf, and it was just a really good scene for everyone. Yeah, I love that they treated him like nothing was different. You know, they treated him like, you know, good old Mitch. They didn't change anything about him, and they were just really appreciative of one another. And that little speech was honestly so, so sweet. And you can just tell that they're genuinely happy to have him back. And they are so excited to continue to work with him again. And of course, we know that it's not going to be exactly the same, but they don't care. They just want him there because they love him so much. 
thankfully we'll see more of Mitch in the later episodes. So that's something really exciting. I didn't realize how much I missed him, but when he came back, I was like, oh, Mitch. So it was really nice to see. And one of the one of the last clips that we see in this episode is Dr. Little Richardson. She's helping um, another mom give birth, and she says that she firmly believes that every woman has a strength to give birth. Everyone is capable of it. And I also am a really firm believer as well. I think, you know, we were created to do that. Our bodies and our biology, where everyone's able to do it, no matter how you get there. And it's, again, crazy to see how she's so pregnant, and she hasn't had a child yet, but she's such a good coach with helping all these other moms give birth. And actually, this birth is really special because there's another doctor next to Dr. Little, and he's actually instructing the mom on how to basically pull her own baby out herself. So he's like, feel the head, and then she pushes more, and then he's like, wrap your hands around the body and pull it out. And that was also so beautiful. And as soon as the baby came out, I really appreciated that um, they had immediate skin to skin. So they put the baby on her chest, and that's something that I don't really see as much these days. They normally just take it to check for all the vitals and whatnot, but direct skin-to-skin contact right after is super important. So I was really glad to see that this time. And I really appreciated that the doctors let her do that. Yeah, that scene was super nice. Um, And I agree, like, I want him to be my OBGYN. Yeah, I want all these doctors, okay? Nothing (laughs) wrong with that. All right. And um, (laughs) unfortunately, the episode ends um, on a really sad note. Um, It's a black screen with, um, you know, white type. And they tell us that Aggie Pena passed away from her battle with cancer. Um, Super, super sad moment um, because all of the hope that we had with this new trial, obviously, um, it didn't work out in her favor. But she's obviously going to be missed by so many people. She had um, a great support system at the end with all of her family members. And yeah, I just, I hope she rests in peace because she was really, truly a beautiful person. And so that concludes um, episode five and six of Lennox Hill. A lot has been covered over these um, two episodes. A lot of growth of, we see um, of all the stories of all the patients. And hopefully we can come back to you guys and talk about the last two episodes. Be well and catch you next time on Crest Talk.